was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Today, as you all know, is the second part of my interview with Broadway star Leroy Reams, and I know you're anxious to hear what he has to say, so without further ado, the man himself, Leroy Reams. I know when I auditioned for uh, uh, Beauty and the Beast, they wanted me to come in and do Be Our Guest. They wanted me to perform it. And I felt that I was at a disadvantage. Number one, I didn't know the number. I hadn't seen the show until I auditioned for it. Oh, really? And to learn that, and to learn that song and present it was a disadvantage for me and put me under a lot of pressure. So I went into the audition. I said, I have Be Our Guest. I can sight read it for you and sing it for you, but I can't perform it for you because I don't know it well enough. So if you don't mind... I would like to sing a song that I do know that in the style of this song so that you can see me perform. And so they said, oh, okay. So I did, uh, uh, light the candle, get the ice out, roll the rug up. If today, though it may not be anyone's birthday, and though it's far from the first of the year, I know that this very minute has history in it. We are here. And so I performed that number and I got the part. And I did the same thing on the producers. And my agent said, don't go in and do take over the audition. They want you to do Hile Myself. And, uh, so I said, and I didn't. I went in the audition, and again, thank God Mel Brooks was in the room. Yeah. Because I knew Mel. Not that he was my best friend, but I had worked with his wife, Ann Bancroft, on her special. And they had seen me in applause, and I knew them. And so I did the same thing. I said, I can sing, hire myself for you, but I can't perform it for you. And Gary Beach won a Tony Award. I can't compete with that. Yeah. So I would like to do something know in the style so you can see where and then I'll, I'll sing it for you so you can know it's in the key and how it sounds in my voice so Mel said yeah do, do what you want to and of course the casting directors were <laughs> and I didn't know about Susan we've never discussed it so again when I went to the center of the stage and I went I had a dream a dream about you Adolf it's gonna come true Adolf they think that we're through, but enough! You'll be swell. You'll be great. Gonna have the whole world on the plate starting here, starting to honey, everything's coming up. Enough! Well, Mel Brooks screamed, laughing, and I got the part. Yeah. So that's so enough, Charles. There'll be other people saying, you show off and they'll kick you out, and that's true. But then again, if you don't go in and showing them what it is that you do, you're not going to get it anyway. When uh, another good audition story for you, 42nd Street. Mike Stewart, the book writer of Hello, Dolly, told me he was writing 42nd Street. Of course, I knew it because of the movie, because I watched The Late Show. I knew the movie. I knew who Ruby Keeler was. I knew who uh, uh, Dick Powell was. So when I 
got the audition uh, and I said, well, now what role am I auditioning for? And they said, Andy Lee. I said, is that the Dick Pop? No, no. They think you're too old for that because I was in 35. They said, no, they think you're too old for that. They want you to audition for Andy Lee. He's about 40 years old. He's uh, a choreographer. He doesn't really have a number in this show, but that's the role they want you. I wasn't going to go to the audition. Now, my partner, Bob, my husband, Bob, uh, was writing on the paper, take the audition, take the audition. I said, why should I take the audition when I don't want to do that part I'm wrong for? He said, just go in and show them what you do. Of course. So I took the audition and I got my account. I said, now, and then those days, again, we auditioned in theaters. So I told my account, I said, now we're going to start out with the uptune. And then we're going to go right into the ballad. Don't ask, wait for them to say, could you sing a ballad? Going to do the uptone, segue right into the ballad. And then a girlfriend of mine, Tony Kay, was in town. And I just choreographed a big tap dance for the two of us called This Can't Be Love. And I said, then Tony's in town. Tony's going to come out on stage in her tap shoes. I'll have my tap shoes on. And we're going to do this number. And I thought, I'm going to stay here all night until they throw me out. So I did the uptune. I went right into the ballad. Tony came out. We went right into the tap dance. And again, dead silence. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm gonna, they're going to throw me out. And coming down the aisle was Gower Champion. And he motioned me to the front of the stage. And I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, you're not right for Andy Lee. And I said, yes, I know that. He said, you're very right for Billy Lawler. I said, yes, I know. And I got the part. That's great. So I want to ask you now about doing 42nd Street, but first I want to ask you one more Hello Dolly question, which is, as you mentioned, when you directed it, Carol Channing playing Dolly was older than you are now. So yes. that- No, she wasn't older than I am now. I'm now 78. And Carol was then 76. Oh. So- No, okay. I look younger, Charles. <laughs> So did that pose a challenge in directing that she was? No. Carol is a workhorse. Nothing was changed. As a matter of fact, in that last revival at 76, Carol danced more than she did originally. Because I restaged Hello, Do I mean, So Long, Deary. I put okay. more movement in it. So she actually danced more in, in that last revival than she did originally. And nothing was changed. Not a single thing was changed. She did the original choreography. Yes, she was 76. Yes, she was slower, but she's 76 years old. But the intent and what she did wasn't. Yeah. So you knew that she was a little older. She moved a little slower. And uh, I mean, that's obvious. But as far as the intent, no. And physically, she did more. I know. Yeah. It was very funny. When we were out of town, we were in, uh, oh God, I had to think what city we were in, Denver. We were in De Denver. And Carol had injured her foot. And it was just before our opening out of town. And Charles called me and he said, Carol has injured her foot. And Marge Champion had come in to help and brought a doctor from California. To Denver. So we met in Carol's suite. And this was a couple days before our official opening. And the doctor said, well, she's bruised the ball of her foot. 
and she's not going to be able to stand on it. Oh. She needs to be off that foot for probably six weeks. And I said, well, you know, doctor, she's not going to do that. She's not going to be off that foot for six weeks. She's going to do the show. Now, what can we do to make it easier for her? I said, well, the only thing we can do is take her, the ball of her foot, turn it down and tape it so that it's tight, so that she's not spread out, that the foot takes the pressure off of the ball. And she can't wear those high heels. She can't wear those high heel shoes. So she had like these big flat shoes that she wore. They were like almost sneaker type shoes. And he said, if she wears those, and of course the dresses are long. So I said, okay. So I said, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna make spats to go over those shoes. So get the wardrobe person, and that was uh, her old wardrobe person, Gene Wilson. And he knew Carol very well and did all the David Merrick shows. David had nothing to do with this, but he was our, our costume person with us. So they made spats for her to cover her shoes to kind of match the dresses, but she was in, you know, flat shoes. And I said, now, Carol, I'll do the tech rehearsals. You don't need to do the tech rehearsals. And Bill Bateman, who was uh, the choreographer and an old friend of ours who had done the show with Carol for years, same with me. I said, Bill can step in and do Carol staging so I can technically get the lights set and get everything set. And then she can do the dress rehearsal. And uh, that way she'll be on the stage and, uh, you know, and then we'll, you know, see how she does. So she stayed off her foot. We did the teching. As a matter of fact, thank God, because the teching went so fast. So we got everything ready and she came in and uh, she did the opening night. And the next day the reviews came out in the Detroit papers and they were raves. They were raves. And so I went to the theater that next night and uh, I walked in and I looked down and I saw that she had those boots back on with the high heels or with the higher heels. And I said, Carol, you cannot be in those shoes. You have to be in those shoes that, you know, the thing she said, isn't it wonderful how a good review can heal you? <laughs> she never wore those shoes again. She went right back into those heel shoes that she, and that's how she did the show. It was miraculous. And I know that when we did the, uh, when we were in rehearsal in New York, before we went out, there was this Italian shoemaker and they had to redo Carol's shoes because she had terrible feet. She had bunions and they had to remake her shoes to make them open more almost like, um, uh, you know, bubbled shoes because of her corns and her bunions and all of that. So they had to redesign her shoes. And so the Italian shoemaker came in one day in rehearsal for her to try on her boots, you know, with the heels. And she, and he, and he came in and Carol tried them on. He said, so what do you think about the boots? She said, I don't know what it is, but you know, they just don't feel quite right. I mean, they still don't feel, I don't feel comfortable. He said, I tell you what you're going to do. I, I got a way to fix this. You take the right shoe, you put it on the left foot. You take the left shoe, you put it on the right shoe. But isn't that strange today? So, no, I'm telling you, do what I say, you feel better. So she changed the boots. She said, 
oh, you know, that's just so much better. It's more comfortable. That's what you'll do. You wear the right shoe on the left foot, the left one on the right. So she wore her shoes that way. Wow. It drove the dresser crazy because every time I set the shoes up, I got a thing. No, the right shoe goes on the left, the left shoe goes on the right, you know. So, but that's the way the show goes on. Yeah. So was Carol Channing, when doing that, always like receptive to your direction? No. No. No, she wasn't. No. We had disagreements. And uh, I know that our first day of rehearsal, I always work with she, with Dolly and Horace because I do the eating scene because it's the most complicated. And that way, if I get that out of the way when I'm working with other things, they can go to another room and practice it, you know. Yeah. And so, and then of course, at the end of the show, Carol comes down the stairs and uh, Horace Van der Gelder says, hello, Dolly. Well, hello, Dolly. It's so nice to have you here where you belong. And his hand goes, da, 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 da. You're looking, and she grabs his hand and then she starts walking down the stairs. So I gave the direction, Carol said, no, that's not right. He puts his hand down and he said, it's so nice to have you here. Then I take his hand on, belong. And I said, but Carol, there's a musical interlude. What do you do during that interlude? And she glared at me, I act. I, said, <laughs> I knew she was wrong, but I said, okay. I was wrong, Jay Garner, who was playing Horace, it's here. And so when we got to Denver, I told Jay, I said, I just want you to know, you do what we rehearsed. You put the hand on here where you belong, but I'm telling you, she's not going to grab your hand until that interlude goes, da, 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 da. I said, trust me. So that night, opening night, Jay got to the point and said, it's nice to have you here where you belong. And she went, la, da, 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 with the hand. And we came off and he said, you know her like a book. I said, of course I do. But that was her testing. And she, but she had this book that they had a cast member of the original Dolly write because he wanted to give Carol a, a present. And Charles said, you can give Carol a present. Write down everything that she does in the show technically. So he wrote down where she stood, what she did with her. And they gave me that book. I never studied it because it was confining. To do that, it's too technical. You've got to, when you come in, you've got to let what happens at the moment. You have your map laid out, but you have to be creative in how you approach it because you do something, once you do it another time, something new may happen. So you have to have, leave your options open, make it creative. So I wouldn't use that book, but obviously she was still reading that book. So it was hard to get her to realize that book was not always correct. And uh, so eventually, we got there, she sometimes fought me, but then she finally acquiesced and uh, it happened, it happened. Yeah. So and I know I've, I've, re I've directed so many women playing the part and every single one of them is different. Now I have my map, I know what I have to teach them, but then I know how they're gonna go. Like recently I did a, a memory about Madeline Kahn who played Dolly down in uh, Atlanta. And there's a moment in the eating scene where Dolly goes, Horace Van Degelder, you go your way and I'll go mine. And it's, she does it. And Madeline said, uh, I don't do bits. Um, I said, well, Madeline, it's not so much that it's a bit. It's just it makes it clear for the audience and it helps to generate the laugh. But I can give you a motivation for it. 
You go your way, I'll go mine. And she takes off her gloves because a woman doesn't eat in her gloves. So that will take away that curse. She said, okay. And then later in the scene, it's repeated. And she said, okay, now what's my motivation now? I said, well, you're serving his food. You've got your fork and your spoon to so you go, you go your way and I'll go mine. You take your utensils, you put them down on the plate. She said, that was really cheap. And I said, and you got your fucking motivation, didn't you? And she laughed and that was the end of it. At that point, we were in love. And because there's just certain things that are built in now. The opposite of that in, in the scene, in the, uh, hat, the hat shop scene, when Cornel's in the closet and Dolly slams, you know, at the door at the end, she says, so you see, Mr. Van Geller, there couldn't possibly be a man in that cupboard. And he goes, ah, and Carol would look front and go, God bless you, which got a laugh. And Madeline said, uh, I can't do that. Uh, I said, well, then show me what you would do. Give, trust your instinct and show me, she said, okay. So she said, so you see Mr. Van Degel, there can possibly be a man in that cupboard, in that closet or cupboard, whatever it is. And you hear, ah, chew. And she looked at Van Degel and she said, God bless you. And he went, oh, don't, don't. So it worked just as well, I got the laugh. I said, the point is we have to get to the conclusion. I'll buy it. And it worked just as well. So you have to allow yourself the creative moments that come. You can't always take an actor and just say, do it the way I do it. Sometimes you have to if they're not getting it. Sometimes you have to do that. But uh, most of the time, if you've got a good actor, they'll, they'll go with you, especially if they think it's going to work. And I know I'm going to give you the conclusion of that. I'm repeating myself from only because I just did it recently. Uh, after the, uh, the show was open and Madeline was wonderful in the show, and uh, she did Sisters Rosenschweig on Broadway. And I went to see it. And by chance, Carol Channing was there that night too. So we went backstage together. Oh. And when Madeline saw me, she ran up and she grabbed me past Carol Channing. She said, oh. And I said, oh, Madeline, you were wonderful. And she said, I'm wonderful in this show tonight. Again, this is a brag. She said, I'm wonderful in this show because I worked with you last summer because you gave me such confidence, which I've never had in my career. I'm always so insecure, but you gave me confidence and everything you directed me to do got a laugh every night. She said, I've never had that much confidence. So I didn't care for this director of the play, but I didn't let it get in my way because I kept telling myself, do what Leroy tells you, follow your instinct, follow your instinct. If it's better then you do that. So she said, I did. And she said, and when I put on that Chanel suit in the show, I was dolly on the ramp. And I said, I'll tell you what, Madeline, don't let them put you in the featured category. They'll probably want to put Jane Alexander in the best actress in you in the feature. Don't let them do that. You get into the best because you're going to win the Tony. And the night of the Tony Awards, 12 o'clock, my phone rings. I pick it up. There's noise the background and she says hi honey I called my mother first because of course she won the Tony and uh, that's a sweet story so we have uh, had a we had a uh, love affair without the sex that's that was my time with Madeline Kahn we adored each other and she said to me when I said you know you're the kind of man I used to fall in love with before I knew what was what so I understood I understood and uh, I know she came to Carol Channing's uh, last revival on opening night. And she came, she said, 
was I that good? I said, in some ways you were better. And uh, she signed my poster and she said, uh, I love you for life, Madeline Kahn. And she died young. Mm -hmm. And I was invited to her memorial service by her husband. And I was so proud of that friendship. So, you know, and I directed a lot of women. And I did production with a French actress named Nicole Quasi, who was wonderful. And she spoke very good English because it was all in English. We brought over the whole company except for her. And the show was in English. And I was in Paris for a month. Oh, my God. I was in heaven. Oh. One of the happiest times of my life. And I directed uh, Carol Channing. And I mean, I, besides Carol, I directed Leslie Uggams, uh, Randy Graff, uh, um, and also uh, from Laugh-In, uh, Joanne Worley. Oh. And uh, I directed a lot of ladies in, in the show. And it's always been wonderful. I, I've loved it. Yeah. It's such a good show. It it's is. It's practically perfect. You, the, the dialogue works. The music works. The, the, it has something to say about, uh, you know, going out and seeking adventure in life and rejoining the human race. And it's like My Fair Lady. They're, they're practically perfect shows. You just, and Guys and Dolls is a practically perfect musical. South Pacific, you know, a lot of that jargon about the, the U2s and all of that, that's kind of boring, but the basic story works and the scores work. Yeah, that's true. I know that Betty Condon said to me once, she said, Adolf and I are not going to see much money out of applause. And I said, why would you say that? Because I won a Tony Award that year. She said, because... The score isn't up to par. So they revive shows for the scores, hardly ever for the books. And that's kind of true in a way. I think the score to applause was fine. And Charles and Adams also did a, a brilliant score to uh, Bye Bye Birdie. I mean, they've written good scores. And then, of course, Charles Strauss did Annie. Yeah. You know, and all of that. So, you know, the guys are good. The guys are good. So I want to ask you now about 42nd Street, which is yeah. maybe your most famous role. So what was your relationship like with David Merrick? Well, again, uh, the first day that I met David, uh, we did a read-through of the show at a table. And after the read-through, he came up to me and said, well, you're going to be very good in the show. And I said, well, thank you, Mr. Merrick. Because that's what Carol Channing called him. He said, don't call me Mr. Merrick. I'm not your father. And I thought, well, I've never called my father Mr. Reams. But uh, okay, David. And I always called him David. And because he asked me to. And at that time in his life, he wanted to be called David. So a lot of the chorus kids didn't call him Mr. Merrick. He liked to be called David. So, you know, but... I in the old days, everyone called him Mr. Merrick. So he was under a, a different attitude then. But yeah, we got along great. Uh, we got along great. He liked me. I liked him. And uh, I'll give you a, a good story on him. When he had his stroke, uh, I was appearing on the weekends at Freddy's, a nightclub on the east side. I did their second show over there. And and when he was recuperating from his stroke, his ex-wife, Aton, he moved in again with her because he was in the process of divorcing Karen Pronzik, his last wife, 
or his you know, latest wife at that time, because he married again after that. And uh, but then he moved back in with Aton. She had to take care of him because he couldn't speak and had a hard time walking from the stroke because he was partially paralyzed. And uh, so Aton called me and said, uh, Leroy, David keeps pointing to your picture in the paper at Freddy's, seeing the advertisement, and we can't understand, but we know that he wants to come and see you. And his doctor said, it's the first time he's left the house or showed any interest in doing so. So we want to bring him to see your act, but please make sure that no one's there to photograph him because he doesn't speak well and he's walking with a cane. And I said, okay, Aton. So that night he came and said, he's here, he's here. So I ran out and got out of the limo and I was on his left. We're walking him into the club, which is dark. And he started saying something I couldn't understand what he was saying. And he pushed her and he pushed me and he bent over. He found a penny on the floor, picked it up and he put it in his pocket. And I said, Aton, I think David's feeling better. So we laughed and we went and saw the huh. show. He, he couldn't express himself, but he was loving my act and he cried. He cried during the act. And, and I went out afterward, we sat at the table and I held his hand. And he was saying, oh, I said, thank you, David. That means a lot to me. Thank you. I miss you too. I don't know what he was saying, but I had a pretend conversation with him. And uh, the next day I was rehearsing with Peter Howard, who had written the dance music to Dolly and had conducted Dolly at one point. And I told him a story about David. I said, he picked up the penny up in his pocket. And Peter said, oh my God, Leroy. There was a song that was cut out of Dolly out of town called Penny in My Pocket. I'm going to go back and find it. He went back in his filing cabinet. He found it, kind of pieced it together. He played and I said, I'm going to learn that song. We called Jerry in California. He said, Jerry, we're going to resurrect Penny in My Pocket. I'm going to learn it. Jerry said, oh, my God, do it for me. I've even forgotten how it goes. So we did, and that's how that song was rediscovered. And, of course, they put it in the last revival. Yeah. And so that that. That's a good story on David Merrick. But uh, he was very sweet and kind to me up until the end. And he wanted to, when Dolly, I mean, when 42nd Street was uh, nearing its, the end of the run, he wanted to do it with an all-black cast, like he did Hello, Dolly. So I had left the show by then, and I was doing La Caja Full in Houston. So my agent called and said, David wants you to fly up and have a meeting on your day off. So I flew up that day and, uh, and had a meeting with David and flew out the next day back to Houston. And I said, well, where's the airline? I said, don't you just buy the airline ticket, David will reimburse you. So we, I flew in and he wanted me to direct the black version of uh, 42nd Street. So we had this meeting Now I knew Mike Stewart was now dead, uh, Gower was dead, and Mark Bramble was still alive, but David hadn't paid uh, the uh, creative people their London royalties because they weren't doing the business they had done, and David was refusing to, to pay their royalties. So I was told by Mark Bramble, he said, David can't do the uh, black version of 42nd Street because he has to pay us our, our residuals. We're not going to let him do it unless he does that. So at the meeting, the press people were there, the advertising agency, and they had the logo with, you know, a black face on the uh, pretty woman, you know, ad. And uh, I was going to direct and choreograph. And I said, well, you know, David, 
I hear you don't have the rights to do it because you haven't paid the residuals to the creators. They got very angry, but he didn't. So and they wouldn't give him the rights, so he decided not to do it. And that's when he did the black version of OK. And they oh. saw it at good speed. So he did it out of spite. But I was going to direct that last version on Broadway. We'd even partially cast it. They were going to have a, oh, the lady from, uh, oh, what was that group that sang, the, the four black people, up, up and away in my beautiful balloon. That group, the uh, oh, I can't think of the name now. Uh, senior moment, Charles. Sorry, you can look it up. But she was going to play the female part, and uh, uh, the the black actor who did uh, the Diana Ross movie, he was going to play the lead. Uh, Hinton Battle. I mean, Greg Burge. Unfortunately, Greg Burge was going to play my part, and they were going to discover a young black girl to play Peggy Sawyer, and uh, that's the way the casting was going to go. But uh, that was David Merrick, so it never happened. That's dish that a lot of people don't know I'm giving to you. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. So I next want to ask you, Wanda Richard, who played Peggy Sawyer, also happened to be Gower Champion's girlfriend at the time. So was that ever sort of an odd thing to sort of have as a dynamic in a rehearsal? Uh, well, uh, before... I mean, there's a long story that I can preface by telling you that when I was told I had the part, uh, I was called in again to audition. And Gower was famous for changing his mind. You know, when they did Mac and Mabel, they had three different actresses. And they used to call it Mac and Maybe, you know, because they didn't know who the next Mabel was going to be, because he changed it three times. It was originally Marsha Rod. Before that, it was going to be Penny Fuller. Oh. Then Marsha Rod, then it was Kelly Garrett, and then it was Bernadette Peters. So there were like four actresses that got to Bernadette Peters. And uh, so my agent said, you really shouldn't go in and audition again because he changes his mind. And I wasn't insecure. I went in. And so when I went to the audition, uh, Gower said, now, I want you to do for me what you did at the last audition. But I didn't have my friend Tony Kay there. He said, but I want you to do it again because I'm getting ready to pick Peggy Sawyer. And I wanted to look at you again. So I did my audition again for him. And so he went, and then I got another call and they said, Gower wants you to come in for rehearsal. I still hadn't signed a contract. And I, but I said, no, I'm going to go. So I went into, uh, and it was uh, the two dance assistants, Karen Baker, Randy Skinner, me, and a girl named Lisa Brown, who was, Gower had thought he wanted to play Peggy Sawyer. So we went in to work with her. And uh, she was on the soap opera, The Guiding Light. She played Nola. And she was also in the cast of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. So we rehearsed together. And then he dismissed her. And he said, so what do you think? And I said, well, I like her very much. I think she has the right personality for it. I think she's kind of off base. And I, I found her charming. And uh, Karen Baker said, well, she's not a very good tap dancer. And uh, Gower decided to take her. That weekend, uh, she handed in her notice to her Broadway show. She had handed in her notice to her soap opera. Uh, this is Lisa Brown. That weekend at an open call, Wanda Richard came to the open call. Um. And Gower saw her and said, she's very good. And Karen said, that's the girl that I saw in Chicago doing cast 
singing chorus line, and she would take never looked at it. And go, so let's keep her after rehearsal, maybe she can understudy. So he kept her and read her, and he changed his mind. So Lisa Brown was now out, and Wanda Richard was in. And Lisa was coming down that Monday to sign her contract, and she was told she didn't have it. It was terrible, and Wanda had the part. Now, but then the good thing is, when Wanda left the show, David Merrick hired Lisa Brown, and she did get to play the part. She replaced Wanda. But then Gower, I had signed my contract, Wanda was signed, and Gower wanted us to come in and work with him privately for a week before the company started. So Karen and Randy, Wanda, me, Gower, and the, and the uh, pianist and the dance arranger, where we had went into the Minskoff and we rehearsed for a week on the, on the ballet. It was really wonderful. One of the highlights of my life is like working privately with uh, Bob Fosse. Here we are with Gower Champion, and we're creating this ballet. It was just absolutely wonderful. And uh, Wanda and I fit together, our legs fit together, our dancing, Wanda's younger, but we, we were the right combination to dance. Yeah. And uh, that worked. And Wanda danced it better than anybody. And it was a pleasure dancing with her. I didn't think she was quite right for the character. I think Lisa was the character, but Wanda was the dancer. And it was lovely having that time to work with her and do it. But I realized during the rehearsal that there was an attraction beginning between Wanda and Gower. Now to get back to your story, I mean, to your question. And uh, when we got out of town, it happened. And uh, that was it. There's a story behind that, but I don't want to go on record telling it. And I'll tell that to you if I ever see you privately. Okay. So... I want to ask you another thing, which is about the famous or infamous, depending on how you want to put it, opening night after the curtain speech. So what was that like for you, being a member of the cast? When we came back into New York after Washington, D.C., we were supposed to open the end of that first week in New York because we were going to go into rehearsal to tweak and we were just doing technical things in the Broadway theater. But David Merrick didn't feel the show was ready to open because we got mixed reviews in uh, Washington. So they started fiddling with the show. And Gower, who told us the first day of rehearsal that he had an anemic blood condition and that sometimes he would come in late because he would have a blood transfusion. But we thought, well, that's what he did. And he said, so an anemic blood condition. So we thought, well, the doctors are handling it. He looked great, and he certainly was working. So we didn't think much about it. And he was having this little fling with Wanda. So how sick could he be? You know. So uh, then we got back to New York, and uh, David was still fiddling with the show, doing little things. And uh, so Gower got upset and stopped coming to rehearsal. And we would do full performances in the theater with nobody in the theater but David Merrick. Yeah. And then the kids brought their eight by 10 pictures and their baby dolls and teddy bears and put them in the seat. So we would pretend we had an audience. And then David invited an audience. And then uh, Cliff Jarf, I don't know why I can think of his name, but I couldn't think of all these. Uh, oh, Billy, Billy, Billy D. Williams. That was the black actor I was trying to think of. And from, I can't think of that black group, but if we keep talking, I'll, 
I'll think of when I go back. Uh, oh, they, they have a name. It wasn't like a, anyway, we'll have to look it up. Uh, popping away in my beautiful balloon. I can think of the songs, can't think of the names. Uh, anyway, let me go back. So uh, Dave and Merrick and, uh, you know, we're doing the show and he invites this audience and in the audience was Cliff Jar who uh, was a writer for the New York Times. And we were having to wear badges to get into the theater. He had security at the theater to stop anyone from coming in. And it caused a lot of controversy. And of course, the press was eating it up. So David was building interest in the show. You know, he's very clever. And uh, so we, uh, the performance didn't happen that night with the audience. When David found out that Cliff Jar was there, David Mayer came out and said, uh, we're canceling the performance tonight because there's a rat in the generator. <laughs> so they emptied the theater, then we did the show. And then there was another time that we did a performance and we all got one ticket. And still it was like a third of a house. It wasn't a sold out house. It was just to get the feeling of an audience. And Gower was at the theater that night, which we didn't know. And after the show, he was in Wanda's dressing room. And so, of course, I stopped and went in and I said, oh, Gower, how wonderful to see you. And I said, well, you heard the audience tonight, small as it was, but you've got a hit. And Wanda grabbed and said, it's all because of you. And he said, no, it's because of us. And he grabbed me and he grabbed Wanda and he pulled us in, and gave us this real tight hug. And I cried. I, I, it was just so dear. And I said, um, and I left. That's the last time I saw him. He never returned. He was in the hospital and never left the hospital. Now, we didn't know that he was actually dying. And so it came time for the opening, August 25th. David came into a party one night. One of the cat and threw the newspaper in the room and said, read when your opening is. And it was August 25th. So we have the opening night. Now, we knew Gower was still in the hospital. He wouldn't be there. We knew that. On the day of the opening, we get a phone call. It said, David wants everybody to theater for a rehearsal at 3 o'clock. Well, I mean, we had tuxedos and limousines and family in town. What do you mean we got to rehearse? We've been rehearsing for a month. But you had to do what David told you to do. So we went to the theater, you know, in our tuxedos. And... Uh, we didn't rehearse. We were sort of like locked into our dressing rooms, but we had our opening night. And uh, then David came out on stage and I thought he was going to say, uh, you know, I want to thank our champion who couldn't be here tonight for this wonderful show. That's what I thought he was going to say. And instead he held his hands up and he said, this is tragic. Well, everyone laughed because we had like 15 curtain calls there. The photographers were in the aisle snapping pictures. It was like a movie. And uh, he said, no, 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 you don't understand. Our champion died this afternoon. Well, we gasped, the audience gasped, and he turned around, went upstage and embraced Wanda, and Jerry Orbach yelled at the stage manager, bring in the curtain, bring in the curtain. So they brought in the curtain. And as the curtain hit the stage, I had a flashback to a conversation I had with Gower during rehearsal, that first week of rehearsal, because I told him, I said, you know, Gower, I always wanted to be at MGM. You know, I'm a 
a song and dance band. I wanted to be at MGM. I was born too late. He said, well, I came at the end of that period, Leroy. I know what you mean. And he said, I'm an old fashioned song and dance band. He said, and then during the 70s, he said, I tried to be with it. I did the drugs. I, I went to the discos. I tried to learn the dances. He said, and then I had to wake up one day and realize I'm an old fashioned song and dance man. And when David offered me this show, although I'd had trouble with David always on the shows, we always fought. He said, uh, and my doctors told me, don't do this show. You're not well enough to go through David and Mary. Don't do it. He said, but Leroy, I had to do it because I don't want to be remembered as a has-been. That's what flashed through my mind. I went to the opening night party. The first person I see is Bob Fosse, who came up to me and said, that son of a bitch. I filmed my own death and all that jazz, and he had to do me one better by doing it on opening night. So we laughed, and I said, well, if there's a heaven, and Gal was there, he's looking down laughing with us, Bobby. So that was it. And, uh, you know, that's the story of that, that opening night. And see, we only had one producer. So when we went to the opening night party, it was at the Waldorf. We had a sit-down dinner, which you never have an opening night. By the time the cast gets there, all the producers have eaten everything with their friends. You're lucky if you can find a place to sit down. We had a sit-down dinner at the Waldorf Astoria and an orchestra that night. Of course, it was a somber night, but it was very exciting. And the show got... It, it, not so much the show got good reviews as it was a, a news story rather than criticizing the show. And we were on the front page of every newspaper in America, uh, the world. It made head, I mean, you can't buy press like that. So a lot of people said, you know, David Merrick really used you. I said, no, he didn't. He made a hit out of the show and the Gower Champion Estate, you know, made a lot of money because of David Merrick's brilliance. And that's the way that I thought about it. Yeah. And I know another story I've got for you, which ties Gower Champion to David Merrick. Uh, when, and a lot of people don't know this story, Charles. When Hello Dolly went out of town in Detroit, it was not a hit. And David Merrick was bringing in people to rewrite the songs and this and that. And David Merrick was going to close the show out of town in Detroit. There was a newspaper woman there who wrote for the Detroit Free Press. Her name is Shirley Eater. She was a columnist and her husband owned a big meat pie packing firm there. They sold hot dogs and stuff, but she was the big, she was like the Liz Smith of uh, Detroit. And Carol Channing was a very dear friend of hers. And the uh, critic from Variety was a friend of Shirley Eaters who came in to review the show. And she told me, she said, listen, this show is going to be a hit and you're gonna give it a good review because Carol Channing is my friend and I'll even help you write the review. <laughs> so the Variety review was good. Gower Champion took that review, flew to LA, got backing, came back to Detroit and said, David, I'll buy the show from you. And David decided not to sell the show and not to close it. And they worked on the show. And Charles Strauss was brought in and came up with the idea of before the parade passes by. Because Penny in My Pocket used to close the first act, but it was Horace Vandegelder's song. So Charles Strauss came up with that idea. He didn't write the song, 
Jerry Herman wrote the song, but Charles came up with the idea and got paid for it. He got a percentage. Oh, really? And then Bob Merrill, who wrote Carnival and wrote the lyrics for Funny Girl, he wrote Elegance and Motherhood America. That song was written by Bob Merrill. So the show was adjusted out of town in Detroit and it became a mega hit and was the longest running musical on Broadway of its time. So that's a story you didn't know. No, I didn't. Yeah. So you, I've got all these years of stories to tell you, Charles. Yeah. Be called Charlie or Charles? I, Charles, I, yeah. You know, my I name, did. Leroy, was written L-E-R-O-Y until I was in the sixth grade. Oh, and I, I asked my mother to see my birth certificate and it was written Leroy because I never had a middle name. So now I did. It was Lee and the middle name was Roy. So I said, mother, I said, well, what did the doctor write? I said, because I was born at home. I wasn't born in a hospital. And so then that became my name. And I could be called Lee. But when you're Southern, you know, you always have two names like Bobby Joe, Danny Ray, and you always have two names. So it was Lee Roy. So that became my name. If I could go back in time, I think I would have changed my name to Lee Rogers because I like Ginger Rogers and Roy Rogers. So, and it would have been an easier name to spell because I always get, you know, a lot of variations on my name. And of course, because Leroy is considered a black name, I used to be called, you know, there was a song called Leroy's Back in Jail Again. And there was a character who used to say, Leroy, who's that girl with the skinny legs? So I used to get teased. And then there was a, a porno star named Harry Reams, spelled differently than my last name, but I used to get everybody saying, oh, Harry Reams, do you? And Harry Reams in relation to Harry. So I used to get people kidding me about my name all the time. So I understand you should be called the name the way that you like to be called. And my name was Lee Roy. And, uh, but I say Lee Roy. And uh, so a lot of people misspell and say the name. But, and then you could call me Lee. I would go by that, but I didn't because that's what I was always called. Yeah. So Charles. Yeah. So I want to ask you another thing about 42nd Street. No. Jerry Orbach and Tammy Grimes, who worked on it, were already sort of theater legends. Yes. Were, they, were they always nice to you? And to you? My first, don't mind the phone, I won't answer it. My first uh, Broadway show that I saw was Carnival with Jerry Orbach oh. and Jerry Ballard. And I ended up becoming both best friends with both of them through the years. And it's ironic that, that that would happen. And Jerry was just the best. He was a thorough professional. He was lovely to work with. He took direction. He was reliable. He was the foundation of a show and delightful to be around and very smart. He was a college graduate. Yeah. So anyway, what happened uh, was that uh, Jerry went on, you know, uh, uh, Jeopardy and one because he's very smart and very bright but Jerry could talk to a cab driver or he could talk to the most intelligent person around he was that smart and a few people knew how brilliant he was and uh, he was a great guy a real pal and uh, because of 42nd Street Street we remained friends till his death he was a close buddy and Tammy the same thing Tammy and I became uh, buddies and uh, till her death and I was her escort 
many, many times, and we extremely close. First day of rehearsal with her, not so much. First day of rehearsal, we did our scene in the, uh, you know, the, the, the rehearsing of Pretty Lady. And, you know, well, you know, uh, she said, uh, and, and, you know, and he says, uh, uh, oh, you know, I, I can't remember the lines now, Charles. I have to say, oh, um, about the kiss. Instead of the kiss, I put out my hand because I'm not supposed to kiss her because of, uh, you know, the, the producer of the, the show, the Texas Kitty Car Guy and all of that. And uh, so uh, with that, uh, we were doing the scene and Tammy said to Gal, she said, Gal, because uh, she called him Gal, which he didn't like, by the way. Gal, uh, when, uh, oh, I'm sorry, darling, uh, uh, when, uh, what's your name? And I said, Leroy Reams. Tammy. She said, yes, well, when, uh, well, when he says that line, uh, what style of acting is he doing? And Gower said, he's doing presentational acting, Tammy, the acting that I want him to do. She said, oh, I see. So he's like that awful actor who's in the Garbo film. So we did the scene, and after the scene, I walked over and I said, <clears throat> Tammy, let's get something straight. I've got the left. I, the other was, I love you, I worship you, I adore you. Then the hand comes, because I can't kiss her. That was the joke. And I said, I've got the joke, Tammy, regardless of what style of acting I'm doing. When I put out the hand, that's going to get the laugh. Now, you can sustain the laugh by your look as you shake my hand but you're not gonna stop me from getting the laugh. And that was the end. Yeah. From that point on, she couldn't have been lovelier. But you get tested. Yeah, that's she true. She was playing because she wanted to get the laugh, you know. Yeah. So, uh, then that was it. But after that, everything was fine. And then the last thing I want to ask you about on 42nd Street was the night that you got nominated for the Tony. Yeah or the night of the Tonys that you were nominated for? Yes. David Merrick was sitting in front of me and uh, he turned around to me and he said, don't worry, you're not gonna win because they hate me. Uh, I don't think that's the reason I didn't get the Tony. Uh, I was very happy to be nominated. I would have loved to have had it, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, Hinton Battle, I never saw sophisticated ladies. I never saw it. But Hen Battle was a wonderful dancer. And he had a lot of numbers in the show and a lot of solo numbers in the show. Yeah. And at that time, everyone was very sensitive about black actors being in shows because there weren't a lot of them working in shows. And I think there was a sensitivity about being fair to black actors, which helped. I didn't see the show. You can't compare apples and oranges. Yeah. And it's just that that's what it was for that night. And uh, yes, of course, I would have loved to have had it. But also, I didn't have a big book part in the show. And I basically only had, uh, you know, We're in the Money was my number. And then the ballet with Wanda was our number, but she had the focus. So, you know, you have to be uh, understanding of what it is that you do. You know, it's like uh, the year that... Uh, Wanda Richard, I mean, that uh, Donna McKechnie was nominated for Chorus Line against 
Gwen Verdon and Cheetah Rivera in Chicago. Uh, that's a hard thing to be up against. But in that number that Wanda did, the music in the mirror, she was so incredible in that number. That's why she won the Tony. It's not that she was better than Gwen Verdon or better than Cheetah Rivera. It's just that that number was new and she did it brilliantly. And that's why she won the Tony Award for doing that number. And sometimes that's the way the cookie crumbles. A lot of times people haven't won. Judy Garland never won the Oscar for, uh, you know, uh, A Star is Born. And she should have. Grace Kelly won for, you know, High Noon. Or the, no, I'm sorry, The Country Wife. The Country Wife, uh, you know. How can you compare those two performances? You can't. But Grace Kelly won and Judy Garland didn't. I'm not, not saying that I'm better than Hinton Battle. Yes, I would have loved to have won it, but I didn't. But I played it and got a lot of money out of it. So, you know, and it, it sort of brought me into focus as, a, as an actor. And I was invited to all of the things and it, it made my name for me, you know. But it made my name as a tap dancer. I also sing Charles and I'm an actor. And I could do that too, but I got cast into, you know, that image. And then as I got older, they kept thinking of me as a young tap dancer. But I still worked and I did other things like Lacage and Victor Victoria and uh, all of that. And then in stock, I, I did My Fair Lady and, uh, and Peter Pan. I played, you know, Captain Hook and Peter Pan. So I, I got some juicy roles doing stock and stuff like that, but as far as the Broadway roles, but then again, I have to say, as far as the Broadway shows that came along, was I right to do one of those roles that got the attention? I was right to do La Cage au Fall, but I was too young at the time. And uh, that's the way uh, the world goes, but it's not over till it's over. You never know what's gonna happen. Tomorrow, my phone could ring and, something wonderful could happen. I now, during the pandemic, stopped dyeing my hair because my hair is usually dark. And uh, I decided to see what I look like at my age. So I decided during the pandemic, because I wasn't working, I could dye it in 20 minutes. But I thought, well, I'm going to now let my hair go gray. And I'm going to see how it looks and, and what it's going to bring my way. And I'm also 78 years old which is limiting as far as casting and also no one's working anyway. So, you know, this is the time that we're stuck in. I'm just lucky that I have my pensions and that I can uh, exist and I can live. I'm so sad about all the young actors who don't have jobs and can't get jobs as waiters because no one's really working that much as a waiter. You know, these are hard, hard times. And I'm just praying and hoping that we're gonna soon be out of this, but we don't know. And in this day and time, who knew that mother nature has put us into this pandemic? Yeah. It's a sad, sad time. But you know, we're doing this, so we're still creating, yeah. and we're talking, and you're learning, and I'm telling you things you didn't know, and I'm fascinated by you finding out what you find interesting at your young age. So we're making a friendship. So this is a positive thing that's happening now. 
we're creating, Charles. That's true. We are. So we have to continue to do. Yeah, you're right. And the fact that you have an interest in this, you know, uh, is, is remarkable. Because, uh, you know, but I had an interest in it too at your age. I couldn't wait to buy all the new out and listen to the Broadway shows in my living room and dream of singing those songs and being on the stage and working with all of those people. And I did. I did. And they became, most of them, my best friends until they passed. And I'm still making friends, you know. Yeah. So, and, and as the song goes, love is rare, life is strange, nothing lasts, people change. And that's the way of the world. So instead of fighting the wave, get up on it and ride it. Ride the wave and see where it takes you. And don't let the negativity and the bitterness of people get in the way of stopping you do what you do. One day we're all going to die, and there's no way to stop that. So don't waste your time. Don't waste your time being sad or being bitter or being angry. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Yeah, you go through the feelings. We all do. But get over it and push it aside. And uh, if you don't like the people and the negativity, don't be around them. Be around the things you like and do the things you like. Yeah, we got to eat. We have to drink. But be easy about what you do eat and what you do drink. And don't smoke. That's an artificial thing that causes harm. And don't do drugs. Don't allow yourself to get into those altered states. Uh, deal with the reality. Now, a lot of people aren't strong enough to do that, and many of them have become very famous as a result of it, but, you know, you just don't do it. It's like Michael Bennett smoked pot. We'd get up in the morning and smoke a joint. He would smoke a joint on his rehearsals, and it got so that he was relying on that feeling. You can't do that. Rely on your reality. Control and make yourself do what you do. And don't allow alcohol to get you into that state. There's nothing wrong about drinking. And if you take a drink for the taste, but don't drink it for the feeling that it allows you to lose control to say and do things you would normally do. Uh, it's, it's just not healthy and it's not good. Yeah. Deal with the reality and try to be as honest as you can without hurting someone's feelings. Sometimes it's better not to tell the truth if it's going to really hurt somebody, unless it's going to help. If it's going to help, then tell them the truth. But try always to be as honest as you can. It's like my friendship with Lauren Bacall. I always told her the truth when she asked. I never tried to patronize her. And I try not to patronize any of my friends. I try to be as honest with them as I can without hurting them. And if it's not going to be any good, then don't tell them. That's true. So I'm giving you all these philosophies because I want you to have a happy life, Charles. I, I think to have an interest in the theater and show business is a wonderful thing. It's made me have a very happy life. And I was lucky to have a mother who allowed it to happen and made sure it would happen. 
who gave me unconditional love, and that's made me a very happy person. And uh, I was lucky enough to find a man in my life who loved me, and we were together for 50 years, and we had, we were only married for six of those years, but we did, and I lived long enough to have that happen rather than to be thrown in jail being a homosexual. Yeah. And uh, that's who you are, and uh, and you shouldn't have, not that you're not going to have tough times, you are. It's part of life. It's part of what makes you who you are, but don't let it destroy you, or don't let it become a habit that stops you from doing what you could do. Uh, you may not get everything you want, but you will if you want it enough, and you work hard enough to do it. And if you don't, you'll do something near it. Like not everybody's going to be a star. And some people go into the business and become directors or choreographers or press agents or something else, or they meet people that they share their lives with who make them happy. And you just have to take off the blinders, look right and look left, and be inclusive to uh, take what life gives you. Don't, don't shut things out. Accept it, but be who you are. And even if you have people who don't support you, then don't be around them. Get with the people who do. Select your friends who are going to inspire you and support you and have things in common with you. So that's what we do. Those boys who called me all those nasty names in high school, I knew they, I was not going to see them once I graduated. I crossed the Ohio River, went into a university, met lifelong friends, and studied what it was I was going to do for my life and found the people to help me get there. And it's been a, a wonderful journey. Not that there haven't been bumps. There have been, but I deal with them. And, uh, you know, I have a knee replacement. I have a pacemaker, but I'm still ticking. And I can still walk. And I can still sing. And I can still act. I can't do the dancing anymore, but I can appreciate it, and I know it. And I can think back of that wonderful feeling I had when I can do it, when I could do it. But now I can watch young people and tell them, you know, how to do it and to share my stories with them and inspire them. And, uh, you know, that's how we all, you know, go along. And I think of all the genius legends that I've worked with, like Cy Coleman and Dorothy Fields, who at 16 was working as a lyricist in a world that women weren't working in. And she wrote all those wonderful lyrics with Jerome Kern. I mean, my God, and I knew her, and she liked me. And I worked with her, and she knew my name. Margaret Hamilton, the Wicked Widow. You think of all these wonderful people that, you know, they were my friends. And, uh, and very few of them. Were, were not nice people, Charles. Very few of them. Some of them were. And some of them had dual personalities. But you learn to work with them, and sometimes you just have to make the adjustment. Nothing is perfect in life. But it doesn't stop us from striving for as close to perfection as we can humanly get. And always follow your instincts. Don't let someone tell you, no, you can't do that. If you want to do that, then you try to make it happen. 
So thank you. That's 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 what I'm trying. It's wonderful that you're interested in all we old people who oh. have done this stuff and that it interests you. So you know, but I did the same thing when I was your age. I loved all the old shows and I know that everybody was listening to Elvis Presley and Rock Around the Clock. And I was listening to Ella Fitzgerald sing George Gershwin and Ira Gershwin's songs. Mm -hmm. I, I uh, went to a movie and I saw a movie called But Not For Me with Clark Gable and Lily Palmer and Carol Baker. How I can remember those names, not the other names I wanted to remember, I'll never know. But anyway, uh, I, I remember those and I remember sitting there at the end of the movie. It was like one of those 50 comedies movies. I think they've shown it once on uh, Turner Classic Movies. But uh, not a very good movie, but an okay movie. But at the end, this woman is singing, they're writing songs of love, but not for me. And I went, and I read this and it said, but not for me, George Ira Gershwin, Ella Fitzgerald. I went to the music store and I said, I want to buy the recording. And they said, well, it's not a single, it's on an album. Ella Fitzgerald sings Gershwin volume one. I saved up my money and bought it. And that was the sound I heard in my head. Not Elvis Presley, not Rock Around the Clock. It was George and Ira Gershwin's songs. And then through Ella Fitzgerald, I listened to Rogers and Hart. I listened to Jerome Kern. I listened to all of these other composers. That was the song, the great American songbook. That's my taste. It shouldn't have been. There should have been Elvis Presley, but it wasn't mine. And it was those old movies, the MGM movies, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, Gene Kelly, Sid Charisse. That, that's where my heart was. That's the sound I heard. So that's the way that I went. And that's what gives me pleasure. And the fact that you enjoy all of these old things, you're, you're a continuation now. So, you know, good for you. We have a lot in common. Yeah. So during this time, you did a lot of appearances on the Tonys and also a lot of specials with Alex Cohen. So how did you meet him? Well, uh, I started, I was prominent on Broadway because of 42nd Street. Yeah. <clears throat> and I got asked to do a lot of things because of 42nd Street. And when Alex started doing the Tony Award shows and these extra specials that he did, many times he asked me to be a part of them. And it was telling, I think the last one I did for him was called Happy Birthday Hollywood. It was celebrating the first hundred years of Hollywood. And I did a number with Hinton Battle, Don Correa and Greg Burge with Ann Miller. And we did Shaking the Blues Away. And you can find that on YouTube. And uh, we were out in Hollywood with all these stars and doing the thing. And I told Alex and I said, you know, Alex, you have to let me tell you how grateful I am that you put me on all these specials because I don't have the name that all these stars have, but you always include me. And he said, Leroy, let me tell you something. Let me tell you the reason that you're here. Being a star and all of that stuff is one thing. But someone during the evening has to get up and do something. And that's why you're here. So isn't that wonderful? Yeah. So... And I, I was very happy to be a part of all of that. Was a big supporter and I do the Tony Awards. They lost importance because what he did, he created shows 
about the theater around the awards. So it's much more entertaining rather yeah. than what they do. And I, I think he had, he did a lot for the Tony Awards. Yeah. So I'm sure that you must have some stories of the stars that you worked with on the Tonys and on these specials. I do. Yeah. I took pictures with all of, I have photographs with all those stars like Lana Turner. I went over and I said, Miss Turner, uh, would you mind if I take a photograph with you because you've given me such pleasure with your talent. And she said, of course, darling. And of course I was in the room and she said, and I want you to know that I'm also a fan of yours. I don't think she knew who I was, but she knew that I was in the room and I was on the show. So she was just being nice because, you know, she grew up at MGM. They were trained how to behave and how to be with people. And uh, uh, so anyway, and she posed for the picture and it was so sweet that you know that she was trained that way. And of course, Ann Miller, you know, you've seen Ann Miller and you know who she was yeah. and all the wonderful tapping and stuff. And she was quite a character and so funny. She was oh. so funny. One of her stories that I, and it was Glenn Rovin's story, who was the conductor of Sugar Babies. And Ann, before the show, had a tap board outside her dressing room. And she would got, she tap dance on this board you know, to warm up. And so Glenn was passing by and it was uh, a Passover. And Glenn is Jewish. So he thought he would be funny because Anne is not Jewish. But Glenn was being funny and he walked by and Anne's tapping on her board. He said, hey, Anne, how are you? He said, so what are you doing for Passover? And she said, oh, honey, I never do those game shows. Because <laughs> she thought he was talking about password. Yeah. So, that's so next I want to ask you about being a director. Do you think that you always had that instinct? To direct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had it in school. I'd, my junior and senior year, I directed and choreographed and starred in the musicals done at the University of Cincinnati. I, I did that. It was a natural thing again for me to do. But you see, I'm like Gene Kelly. We were both born on August the 23rd. I sing, I dance, I act, I direct, I choreograph. But I like to perform best. I like being on the stage. And uh, I did that and I was successful doing it. And then when I directed Carol Channing in uh, the Hello Dolly revival, the last one, I got some attention. And a lot of people started saying, oh, so you're not acting anymore. Now you're just directing, right? I said, no, 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 no. I, I, I direct, I, I act, I, I choreograph, I do all the, oh, I thought maybe now that you're not acting anymore. And I was afraid that people were not going to hire me to perform anymore because they were thinking now I'm a director. And then when you direct, Charles, you're kind of responsible for what happens. Yeah. So as an actor, you're not always responsible saying the show's terrible because you were terrible in it. They say, oh, the show was terrible. The book wasn't good or the music wasn't good. Uh, they hardly ever, you know, talk about the actors. But when a show is bad, many times the directors get blamed for it. Yeah. And so when you're offered a show, if you don't respond to it well, you say, oh, well, I don't want to do that. And you turn a lot of things down. They don't ask you anymore. And then if you want to work and make money, which is a necessity, 
I like to make money. You have to sometimes do things you wouldn't normally do to make the money, but then you're held responsible for it. And then if it's bad, then they don't want to hire you the next time. Yeah. They kind of blame you for the problem. So it's a, it's a hard thing to juggle, hard thing to juggle. And uh, so I should have done more directing, but I did turn a few things down that brought my way. But then there were also people my age who were already doing that as a profession. So then I would be competing with those people who already had, the, you know, the, the resume that I didn't. So I just didn't get into it. That's all. Now, not that I can't do it now if someone asks me, but now at my age, all the people I worked with and who worked with me are dead. And a lot of the young people coming up don't know me, although they think they may have heard of me or something, they don't have the connection. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an influx now that I'm going through. I'm in purgatory now at this point in my life. And, uh, you know, and not a lot of shows are being done. And now no shows are being done. And when they are, there are people who already have the, uh, you know, the resume that I don't have. So they're going to ask them to do it before they're going to ask me. Unless it's a personal friend who knows my work that way. But I haven't done that much in, in the theater now that I did. I directed uh, Anything Goes with Paper Mill Playhouse with Cheetah Rivera, which is one of the best things I've ever done. And she was so brilliant. But no one really got to see it unless she went to Paper Mill Playhouse. And uh, so it's kind of a crossroads. I don't know where I'm supposed to go at this point. I'm, I'm in the in a jumble, so I'm hoping that I'm gonna be shown the way for what it is I'm supposed to be doing now. I wouldn't mind directing and choreographing. It's very hard to direct and choreograph both because of the time. Yeah. And uh, I think that what I have to offer is more as a director because my head seems to go there more. I can choreograph. But, you know, it takes, it's a hard time to do. Now, when I did uh, Anything Goes, I directed and Michael Lichtenfeld choreographed. And Michael and I had a meeting and I said, you know, Michael, uh, if I had time, I'd do it, but I don't. And so you do it, but you know, like, uh, it's delightful, it's delicious. To me, it's a number about girls in long skirts, you know, in long formals, dancing all over the deck. That's how I see that. Blow Gabriel Blow is like a revival meeting. I want to see tambourines and people blow with adding tambourines. And I want a, a trumpeter from the pit to get up and come on stage and do things with his trumpet, do passages to add to the score. So it's like make a person Gabriel. And that's so, and he took that and we worked together. And, and, and I said, and anything goes, everybody has to tap dance. Even the lady in the wheelchair. I want her to be wheeled across. I want her to look, pick up her skirt and do a time step and throw it down and be wheeled off. I want everybody tap dancing. So I, I had the concept, but I didn't have the time to create the dances unless I had done it before rehearsal. Because once you get in, you don't have the, the leisure. You don't have the time. You've got to do both at once. Yeah. And many times one suffers because of the other. And I know that with all the brilliant director choreographers I've worked with, Gower Champion, Bob Fossey, Ron Field, I'll go down the list. I can tell you honestly that the thing that suffered most was the acting direction. Yeah. They were more into choreographing 
they were more into that. They had a concept, but their strengths were more in the directing. I mean, in the choreography rather than the directing. I think the one person who may be an exception, but I never worked with him, was Jerome Robbins. Because Jerome Robbins' shows, like Fiddler and things like that, uh, he, his concept of, of the show with the acting and the dancing, I think was better. Yeah. So, and I know that I worked with Fosse and I worked with Gower and they weren't as much into the acting directing as they were into the choreography. But if you hire professional people, they should know how to do that anyway. You just have to kind of select what works and what doesn't. You know, it's not that you have to teach them, but for my interest in my head, I get into the book. And that's what I did with Dolly. I like to get into those scenes and give them reasons and, you know, and, and to tell Cornelius, you have to remember that you're 33 years old, you're a dreamer, and you have all this passion that's never been touched, and you just want to be this, and you're brave enough to go for it. And so I had to see that, I had to see you fall in love for the first time. And so that's where I enjoy, like Irene Malloy, you say, you know, you're a young woman, you had a great marriage with a hot husband who died young, regardless of whether he was killed or he died of something, but you're still ready to offer something, and you're young, and you're horny. So you find something to have a reason to live. So that's where my head goes in a creative process. So I think I would be better in that and supervising the choreography or else working as a choreographer, which I did in college because we had more time so that I could do both. But in the real world, you, you need the time or work that the, the producer would get you some money to create the dances and then get an assistant we could work doing the dances while you worked with the actors. Yeah. But yeah, I'd like to do that. And I don't mind doing revivals uh, rather than new pieces. Sometimes revivals are easier because you know them and you have something to refer to. I know that with Anything Goes, we didn't do anything at the original because no one knows it. And then the revival, the last revival they did was Reconceived. And so I took both versions and I rewrote my own version which was probably not legal to do, but no one complained and no one really knew. And I also added a lot of other stuff. And uh, I know that uh, Angelo De Rossi, who was then the producer, was afraid we were gonna get sued. But the uh, wife of the original uh, uh, book writer and the mother of the, of the son who did the revival, she came to see the show and she said, this is the best version of the show I've ever seen and it should be touring. And it wasn't, I couldn't get anyone interested because you know, they didn't think they could sell it, but uh, yeah. So, so maybe the I'm next thing that you directed that I wanted to ask you about was an evening with Jerry Herman. So how did you come in contact with Jerry Herman and ask him to do that? Or well, it was Jerry Herman's idea. Oh. It wasn't mine, but Jerry and I were very, very dear friends. And his two favorite singers, which he has said, and he put it in his book, as Florence Lacey and me. We were his two favorite singers. And uh, when we did Dolly for the first time in 78, uh, and when Jerry came in, because we had rehearsed, and then Jerry came into town to observe. 
And then the scene where I said, Barnaby, you and I are going to New York. And I went, boom, and I went, out there, there's a world outside of Yonkers. And Jerry jumped up and said, oh my God, that's the sound, that's the sound I want. Oh, he was so happy. And then later, when we did the, the courtroom scene, and Florence and I sang, and Jerry stopped. And he got up and said, I want you all to know, these are the two voices I hear in my head when I write. This is the two voices I hear in my head. And I finally got those two voices. And so he conceived this evening. It was Jerry's evening. He wrote it, he put it together, and he asked for me and Florence to do it with him, and he asked me to stage it. And that's how we did it. And we loved doing it. And it was very successful, and we decided to bring it to Broadway. And we went to the Booth Theater. We were all so enthusiastic. It was in August. And most of the critics didn't appreciate it. They felt that it was a, and they said so, an off-Broadway cabaret show and didn't belong in a theater. And that it was a, like being on a cruise ship. We took some hits. And it depressed Jerry deeply, as was I. Uh, it, it hurt us very much that they didn't understand what it was we were doing because we didn't have an orchestra. It was just Jerry at the piano and a bass player, me and Florence. It was a small entertainment. The booth is a small theater, but they didn't appreciate what it was we were doing. First of all, this was Jerry Herman, who was one of the greatest songwriters next to Irving Berlin who wrote lyrics and, you know, music. And he was telling his story out of his own mouth. And we were singing the songs the way he wanted them sung. And I thought that was a great thing for people to appreciate. Now the people who understood it did, but it was the critics who thought, what is this little show with a piano and a bass and, you know. Mm -hmm. And so they took out after us and it failed. We were only gonna do a six week run, but, we closed after four weeks. It broke our hearts. Um, and, and, uh, but it was a great evening. And you know, you, there's, it's on an album that Karen Morrow and I did at Rainbow and Stars. And you can get it, it's on Arabesque Records. And it's called uh, An, evening with Jerry, An Evening with Jerry Herman, Rainbow and Stars. It's on Arabesque Records. You can find it if you go on you know, Amazon or one of those, you can find it. And that's me and Karen Morrow singing his songs the way he liked it. We recorded it. But uh, it's still a great evening. And it's a great concert evening to do. But it's just the being in Broadway, the critics didn't respond. I did not all of them, some of them. Yeah. And uh, they just didn't understand it, what we were trying to do. But also when Patti Lapone did her act in a theater with a band, I thought it was terrific. They, didn't, they don't appreciate that on Broadway houses. They like more theatrical stuff, like Elaine Stritch's evening worked, when it was just one person, you know, and that kind of thing. But when you do those uh, cabaret type shows, they don't always work. It did very well for Marlena Dietrich, God knows. But when Peggy Lee did it, it didn't work for her. It worked very well for uh, Lena Horne, one of the greatest things I've ever seen in a theater, but it was a complete full orchestra. It was more like a play, you know, 
Yeah. And uh, so it misfired that way, but it's, it's still a wonderful evening. I'm so glad we did it. Yeah. So, so the very last thing I want to ask you about, because I think it's sort of like a full circle thing, is you playing Dolly. So when did you sort of, when did you sort of get the idea that you wanted to play Dolly? Uh, when... Well, I'll tell you, I wanted to play Dolly, and I also wanted to play Rose in Gypsy. Oh. When I was younger, and I thought, because it's such a great role, and those two characters <clears throat> are kind of masculine in their demeanor because they take control, and they uh, push the, the plot forward. They control it. It's rather a masculine thing to do, and they're kind of tough, durable women who, you know. So I thought a man can play that. And uh, I thought I, would, I wanted to play Rose in Gypsy because it's a good part. It's not so much wanting to dress up and drag and act like a woman. It wasn't that at all. It was to play the role because it's so rich. And uh, and what a transference to be an actor and be able to be something else other than yourself differently and to talk differently and find out what it would feel like to do that. So I called Arthur Lawrence, and I had done a, a thing with Arthur, uh, Katie Sullivan and I, and he was kind to me and liked me. And I said, Arthur, don't laugh at me, but if I can get someone that would allow me to do Gypsy and play Rose, will you give me the rights? And there was a beat, and he said, for you, yes. I know that you will treat it uh, real. I said, yes, I'll do it very honestly. He said, yes. If you can find someone to let you do it, I'll give you the right to now. We may have trouble with Stephen. Uh, we wouldn't have trouble with Julie Stein because I worked for him and I knew his widow, Margaret, and I knew I could get Julie Stein's permission. And I knew I could get Arthur's, but Stephen may have been a problem, but we didn't have to worry about it, it never happened. But he said that he would help too. And then I didn't give up up on the Dolly thing because Jerry and I knew them. I knew they would give me permission. And I knew the show so well that I would like to play the role. Now, what's hard in directing yourself is you can't be out there watching it. And once I saw part of it, I knew where some of it I went wrong, like in the eating scene, she's very dear friend and is brilliant playing the part. I shared it with him and I should have been a little more centered so I could have faced front, I could have seen my face better. And also we didn't have enough technical time because it was summer stock. We didn't get the sets until Sunday. They had to be put up Monday. We had to rehearse on Tuesday. We had to take everything and open on Thursday. Wow. Not enough time because we didn't have enough in the stage crew. We didn't have enough people working. Technically, it was too much to undertake on such a short time. But once we got it running for a week, and then I found my footing and I got my stamina back. But it, was, but it was still good once we got it going. But I loved the fact of doing it. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's good as an actor to stretch yourself, and like doing uh, My Fair Lady. When uh, I was offered to do it down at the Muni, Howard Keel from the, you know, the MGM movies was playing Professor Higgins. But the guy playing uh, Alfred P. Doolittle had to drop out. And so the producer asked me if I'd step in and do it. Now, that's a role I would never be cast in, never be brought in to do. And he was in a pinch. And he said, would you do it? 
And I said, yes, I will, because I'll never be asked to do it again. And I can make that work. I can make that character work. So Leslie Denniston, who was at least my age, who was playing, of course, Howard Keel was 82. And so uh, when we showed up for the first day of rehearsal, Leslie said, oh, Leroy, it's so wonderful that you're playing Freddie. I said, I'm not playing Freddie. I'm playing your father. She said, what? Huh? I said, yes. Don't worry, Leslie, I'll pull it off. And I found a way to make it work. And also playing Captain Hook. That would be a role they never asked me to come in an audition for, but I was asked to do it by Paul Blake. And I loved playing Captain Hook. And uh, those were two roles that I actually won the acting award in St. Louis for, the Judy Award, who was the local critic. I got the award for both of those shows because I was doing something that I don't normally do. And uh, it was a stretch. You know, I had to think differently, act, uh, dress up differently, and uh, make up differently. And for uh, Captain Hook, of course, in the first scene, he's the father, which was easy enough to do. And of course, I can do an English accent. I had it all down, so I can do that. But then Captain Hook was going to be a change, and then I saw the costumes I, were going, I was going to wear. They were huge, big hats. I looked like a Vegas showgirl, and these bright fuchsia pinks and all the bows and all the things and uh, and then these big hats and I thought they're never going to see my face so I'm going to wear big wigs I'm going to wear big exaggerated makeup I'm going to put a beauty spot on and I'm going to play Captain Hook as a fop so I played him that way as a fop so it was very funny and of course, I threw my little sides in, like when he goes down with the Lost Boys, and you're going to swab, swab the dick, and you're going to... And at the end were these two teenage boys. And I stopped and I looked at them, and I said, and you two will be my cabin boys. And I flipped my hair, and of course, I got a huge laugh. Full entendre. But the people who got it, got it. The kids didn't know the difference. Friends. So I played him as a fop, so I got a lot of laughs. And I put on exaggerated makeup and big red lips and eyeshadow and arched eyebrows, and it was so much fun. So, you know, you find your way of doing it. Is there another role that would be sort of a stretch that you'd like to do, maybe when theater comes back? Uh, uh, a role that I would have liked to have played, and I didn't get a chance to. I was asked to do it, but I decided to do Jerry Herman's the evening with Jerry Herman instead, I was asked to play the devil in Dan Yankees down at the Muni. And that's a role I would have liked to have played. It's not a big singing, dancing role, but it's a role that I would have liked to have had a chance to do. I would have played him very differently. I would have played him asexually. I would have played him much more arched than the way that it's normally done. But I could have made that role work. And it's a good show. Yeah. So that's a role like, and also I was offered to play uh, the man in the chair for uh, the drowsy chaperone. But I was getting ready to do Dolly, and the lot there's so many so much dialogue in the drowsy chaperone, and I don't know it. And it was a ten day rehearsal period, and I didn't have the time to learn it. I could have had the script and spent a month 
preparing the dialogue, but my head was about doing Dolly and my interest was there and I, and I would have had to do that before doing Dolly and I can't do two things at once. So I, I declined and it was only for two weeks in stock, but it would be a role that I would like to have played. And I liked the show very much. And also the director, Pam Hunt, I would have liked to have worked with. But I got to work with her later at the, at the uh, um, York Theater. We did uh, The Define and Claw, The uh, Decline and Fall of the Entire World, Seen Through the Eyes of Cole Porter. I did that, so I got to work with Pam, but I would have liked to have done that show with her. And I was flattered. She asked me to do it, but I didn't get a chance to do it. I do it now, but I would just have to have the script and I would have to spend a month learning all the lines. Yeah. Thank well, you so much for doing this podcast. It was an honor to be able to hear all your stories. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and I'm happy to announce that the next episode of this podcast will be with the wonderful actor Michael Rupert. Tony winner Michael Rupert started his career at the age of 15, starring in Candor and Ebb's The Happy Time, and has worked steadily ever since. His credits include playing Marvin in falsettos in all its forms. He also wrote and starred in the musical Mail. Among his other numerous acting credits, number Pippin, Legally Blonde, Sweet Charity, and more. I hope you all enjoy that episode. Thank you.